Welcome to On Publishing from the Binary Agency. This is Alex Field. And this is Ingrid Beck. Every week, we talk to professionals from the world of publishing. Our goal is to educate, inspire, encourage, and inform. Let's get started. On today's episode of On Publishing, we talk with Katherine Hamilton, a senior editor at Harper One, a division of HarperCollins. She has been on the team for 10 years and works closely with the imprint's best-selling religion and spirituality and self-help and personal development authors. Some of her authors that she's worked with include um, Devon Franklin and Gary John Bishop, who wrote the Almost Million copy bestseller, Unfuck Yourself. Um, So a very diverse list. So we just had a very great conversation with Katie and found out a lot about her process as an editor and also some of the internal processes at Harper One. This conversation covers a lot of that internal baseball, right? That inside baseball inside Mm -hmm. of a publishing company, uh, Harper One in San Francisco within Harper Collins. And I I was fascinated by how they cover so many different categories and types of books in what they do, including, like you mentioned, memoir, religion and spirituality, self-help, diet and health, and even celebrity biographies. They do a whole range of different types of books. And Catherine is acquiring and editing a lot of books in a variety of those categories. It's helpful to see a perspective of someone like her in the trenches. She talked a lot about what is it like when they're in the room with their editorial team and they're trying to decide on which books to buy uh, and which authors to take a risk on and, and do a book deal with. And that I think will be interesting for anyone who's seeking a book deal. And she also shared a little bit about her journey as an editor and reflecting on her dream as a young person to be an editor someday. And so that was fun to kind of tease that out and realize that she is doing the work that she always dreamed of doing. And of course, we also talked about books. As we always do, we talk about the books that that changed us. And and she mentioned a couple that changed her or were important in her life. I've said this before. I think every editor in a lot of ways has their own voice in the same way that a writer or author develop their own voice over time. That's that's uniquely theirs. I think editors do that as well. And so she talked about her process and how she dives into a manuscript with one of their authors and what her pet peeves are. And again, these are really, really small, detailed things that I think will be interesting for those who are writing something and want to know, what is it like to work with an editor? Before we get to our interview with Catherine Hamilton, a couple things I want to call to your attention. First of all, go check out our website, thebinderyagency.com. We have a lot of resources up there for writers, uh, for anyone in the midst of trying to publish their book. Some of those are free articles. Obviously, there's this podcast in every episode we've uploaded so far. And uh, there are also some ebooks. The most recent one is called Firestarter. And it's basically an all in one guide for the whole process, whether you're at the very, very beginning starting to write your book or you're trying to sell your manuscript that you've already finished. There's a lot of good content in there for you. Go check that out right now. Uh, if you have any questions for us, send us an email at info at thebinderyagency.com. Send us any questions you want us to talk about on the air. If there are people you'd like us to interview or questions about the process, put the word podcast in the subject line of your email, and we'll try to address those on a future episode. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you enjoy our conversation with Katherine Hamilton. 
Katie Hamilton, thank you for joining us today on the On Publishing podcast. Uh, really excited to get to talk with you about what you do at Harper One. Maybe we could start, uh, you know, back up a bit and start with how you got into the business in the first place. Uh, was this um, a foregone conclusion? Did you know you always wanted to work in publishing or was it an accident? Thank you for having me. It's, it's fun to get to talk to you here on your podcast. Um, I'm excited about it, about listening to your podcast too. I think it's a great service that you're offering people here. In terms of how I got started in publishing, you know, it's funny because I was having lunch with a friend the other week and we were talking about our jobs and he mentioned, oh, well, you remember uh, in high school, this is a friend of mine going all the way back to high school, you remember that you mentioned you wanted to be a book editor. And I said, no, I don't remember that at all. High school seems <laughs> long ago and very hazy at this point. Um, but he remembered that that was a passion, apparently, that I had at that time. And um, somehow I landed here. But in the interim, I went to school, I got my degree in English and history. You know, for English majors, there's only a few different tracks if you're going to actually use your degree, um, uh, publishing being one of them. And so as I neared the end of my college career, I started thinking seriously about how much I loved reading books, how much I would love to be involved in creating them um, in the nuts and bolts of shaping a manuscript and getting it ready for publication. So I had moved to Chicago right after graduation, hoping that maybe I would find there are some publishing houses in the greater Chicago area, uh, find a position there that did not come to be. I ended up doing an administrative role out there, which I always say I'm very, very thankful for because uh, when you start in publishing, a lot of the job is very administrative. And so I felt like I got those skills under my belt, moved out to San Francisco uh, a couple years later, and ended up kind of stumbling into uh, seeing that there was a position open here at Harper One for an editorial assistant. And the other uh, fortuitous thing about it is that that position was for an editor who, among other things, edits a number of titles on our religion and spirituality list. And that was a category that I had some knowledge of and interest in. And so uh, it seemed to be a great fit and uh, have grown from there. Wonderful. How did you get to Harper One in the first place? What was the first introduction to Harper One for you? I mean, I knew some of their books uh, just from reading them. Uh, particularly, I remember in my interview, I mentioned to uh, who would become my, my boss later on that reading C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce was very formative for me. A Grief Observed as well. Those were two books that I had read just like in the few years prior that I have returned to over and over again. Um, and we publish here at Harper One all of C.S. Lewis's adult nonfiction titles. And so one, just being familiar with a little bit of who Harper One is, I learned a lot more when I started working here, but being shaped by some of the books. And then from a practical standpoint, I actually came across the job listing online and then uh, had reached out to somebody who had worked here for a while and, and asked them for more information about uh, Harper One and what the role was and uh, came in for an interview and it was a good fit from there. That's great. So tell us a little bit more about Harper One and about your imprint's particular focus within the larger HarperCollins organization. Uh, yes. So Harper One, we are an imprint of HarperCollins. We're actually an imprint of HarperCollins General Books Group. And so uh, most of those imprints are based out in our New York office. We are the one imprint that is based here in San Francisco. 
which I love because I love living on the West Coast. I'm from mm-hmm. uh, Northern California originally. And okay. I also think as much as I love visiting New York, I get out there a few times a year for work and that sort of thing. As much as it's so much fun to be there, uh, it is just a different environment. than we yeah. get a little bit more of a laid back publishing experience out here in, in San Francisco. But in terms of what our imprint actually focuses on, uh, we are, uh, I always like to start with our mission statement, um, because I think it is a good guiding principle for uh, the identity of who we are. And our mission statement as an imprint is that we are publishing books for the world that we want to live in. Ooh. And that's I love a nice, that. yeah. uh, thank you. Yeah, I do as well. Um, it's a nice broad statement in a way that we can fit a lot of different types of things into that. Um, but it also does have at its core, the other thing that I tend to usually say is uh, books that encourage growth or transformation is also really at the core of what we do. And that can be in a number of different ways. Um, and so the categories that we uh, mostly publish in are, as I mentioned earlier, religion and spirituality has been one key category, um, although that's defined very broadly. That can be defined, and we do have books, as I mentioned with the C.S. Lewis, that are to a Christian audience. Uh, but we also have books for I would say many of the other world's religions as well. Um, and so, and it, it just can be a very broad definition of religion and spirituality, which I like and appreciate um, and gives me a lot of variety in the types of books that I can work on. We also publish books to the health and wellness space. And so transformation of one's actual physical body being part of that as well. And then we also have self-help and personal growth growth titles, which clearly fits in with that transformative approach. Uh, And then we also publish memoir. And I usually say it's memoir with a message. It's uh, sometimes inspirational memoir, but it's actually sometimes it's a memoir manifesto, memoir slash manifesto, which I think is always fun to find those those projects. Um, And so, but anything that's going to encourage our readers to think, to learn, to grow and to um, be better in some way toward whatever it is that they're seeking after in, in their life. That's good. I wonder, I mean, one of the things we, we like to talk about, I mean, both at, in the work that we do as literary agents, but also just in general with our publishing friends is how do you go about acquiring books? And that's, um, it's very different for every publisher. It's very different for every individual editor. I'm curious, Katie, when you're reading proposals, when you're meeting authors or talking with them on the phone, what is it that you're really looking for? What are the kinds of things that pique your interest uh, personally and and perhaps you know generally at Harbor One? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, that's one of the, the fun parts of the job, I think, is that it's different for every author and every project and uh, and every editor. Every editor has different things that they're looking for. For me, uh, you know, usually m- most of our proposals come in through agents um, like you, Alex, uh, and uh, which isn't to say that we, we also are out looking for, you know, somebody that might be a good fit for our list that maybe isn't represented by an agent yet or um, we just haven't made contact with them yet. And so it does go both ways, but generally... Uh, most of our stuff comes in through agents when our proposals. And when I pull it up, the great thing also about working with the agents that we have relationships with is they know, like you know the types of projects that I tend to gravitate toward or the types of people that I might be interested in. And so that's also nice because it's uh, already, I know if I get something in my inbox from Alex that I'm going to be at least interested in what what that is. Um, So looking into it, you know, I'm saying, is there something 
that feels new that this person is saying, that feels fresh, um, even if it's a tried and true topic, are they coming at it from a different angle? Are they themselves, because of what their life experiences, coming at it from a different perspective uh, than what has already been done out in the marketplace? Um, mm -hmm. I think a big part of our job as acquisitions editors is being aware of what exists in the marketplace and being aware of where there are holes that need to be filled. Um, and I think we're in an exciting moment right now where we are more and more looking for voices that have traditionally not been published um, to have their chance to be published. And so uh, there are those holes that unfortunately have been there for uh, really negative reasons that we are looking to fill, but we're also looking for, are they the right person to speak to that, um, whoever it is. And so as I review the proposal, it seems like they've got a great idea, a great topic. I'm also looking for, do they have a background in what they're talking about? If it's a prescriptive book, do they have credentials in what they are talking about? If it's uh, a memoir or, or that sort of thing, what is the experience that they bring to this? And then also, who is the audience that they're trying to reach? Um, have they already created a following of some sort? And many times, I mean, the word platform gets thrown around and we can talk more about platform if we want. Um, and a lot of times people see it as kind of a negative thing just because it is hard to to build and to grow that. And it feels very commercial and it feels sometimes inauthentic. But when I look for a platform, what I'm honestly looking for is that the author isn't speaking into a void that they don't have this great idea, but nobody cares. <laughs> what I'm looking for is not only do they have a great idea, but it's one that they realize resonates with many other people as well. And they're not just talking at those people, but they are back and forth engaging with those people to say, let's do this journey of life together. Maybe I figured this one piece out that I think somebody else could learn from. So let me share that knowledge with you. And then let's move forward together. And so that's, I, for me, when I think of platform, I'm really thinking of engagement with a group of people, creating a community. Um, and that's one thing that I think has been really interesting to see about, you know, social media growing and evolving in different ways is there's these communities that are popping up of people who don't know each other in real life, but who are being encouraged by each other, who are making life changes because of people they're meeting in those groups. And so I think authors have a really unique way to um, take what they start there, maybe in an online setting, create a book that can go deeper, um, can be more longer lasting, um, and and share that with to start those followers. And then, of course, we, we reach beyond that as well. So I'm looking for a great idea. I'm looking for something that feels fresh and original from somebody who has started to share this or something like it with a community of people. Um, and ideally, somebody who has some talent as well, obviously, it would be wonderful um, uh, that they have honed their writing talent in some way. Um, and so those are traditionally the, the main things I'm looking for. So if you're thinking about aspiring writers, can you share with us a little bit about your process and your team's process? Are there regular meetings that you guys have where you talk about proposals or what does it look like? when you're reviewing proposals or ideas and how do you, how does the approval process work? I feel like the first thing to say is when you are sending a project to an editor and then that editor is sharing it with team members, you are sharing it with a bunch of readers who love books. <laughs> so yeah. uh, sometimes I think people think it's going into this, especially with a, a large publisher like HarperCollins going into this, 
corporate factory <laughs> where we're just churning mm-hmm. through. And really, we are passionate people who love what we do and love, ultimately love the power of the written word. And so when I receive a proposal in, if it connects with me, if it sparks something with me, and I think it's something really special, I'm immediately sharing it with members of my team and saying, I think you need to take a look at this. What do you think? Do you also see something here? That also helped me to get a different perspective of maybe questions I didn't think of or um, information that I still need to track down or that I need to find out by having a conversation with the author, um, you know, that I wouldn't have necessarily thought of, but other people on my team will come at it from different angles, which I really appreciate. So usually the first step is me reading, then reading with a, a small group of people. And then we do have weekly editorial meetings where we get together with our entire editorial team that's based out here in San Francisco, and then also our publisher who's based in our New York office, our president and publisher is there. Uh, And then there's a few editors in the New York office, um, and we have a person from our sales team join us, a person from our foreign rights team join us, um, and we have this really full conversation, um, especially if it's something we are very excited about and see a lot of potential in. We'll talk through, yes, there's any any other people who maybe know this person or have some experience with them or their work. We'll talk about questions of if they published books in the past, how did those books do? And, um, you know, if they did really well, why? If they didn't do very well, why? Um, Analyzing again, like I said before, what is the need in the marketplace that we see this book filling? Those conversations, again, are just really helpful because we're trying to get as much information as we can around the author and the project for, one, how much do we really like the material on the page, but then two, how do we think we can sell it? Um, that's, you know, a very important question that we're always trying to figure out with every project that we review, because, I mean, I can't tell you the number of things I've fell in love with on the page. And it's really hard because there's not uh, enough in place that we think we can sell it at this point. And many times I'll tell an author, if I turn down a project like that, I'll tell an author, tell the agent, you know, I love this. I think they're very talented. Um, I'm going to be following them now. I'm so glad that I'm introduced to them. Let, let's talk again in two years or three years, or it, maybe it's not even that long. But when something more has built up, because I see it moving in that direction, um, I'd love to you know, keep in contact. And, and I've had things uh, come together in that way, too. I had a project recently that it was almost that exact thing where I had passed on the author's first book. They went out and published that first book. Um, it was successful. Um, and then came back to me and with a second book idea. And based on a few different things, I thought that the idea for the second book was even stronger than the first book. Um, and also given that the author showed that she could publish successfully with the first book that she did, um, we decided this was a good time to work together and we bought the second book. So mm-hmm. that's another thing I think is important maybe for authors to know sometimes is getting those rejections is really hard, I know. And we try to be... Uh, sensitive about it. And we try to also give as much information as possible. So you know, our reasons why, um, because I think that that's helpful information that you can take and use to grow whatever it is, you know, the piece that we're saying maybe needs some work still, or sometimes it's just, you know, not a good fit for me, but another editor is going to know how to sell that book, and they will, you know, be the right fit for it. So it's so helpful, Katie, to hear um, your process and how you're you're reviewing this yourself. And and as a team, I think a lot of writers that we talk to, especially those at the very beginning of the process, or uh, who you've never gone through this before, have that sense, like you described earlier. It is this the industry's this wall, and how do we get inside, and what do we have to do to get a book deal? And I think 
you know, it's important to remember there are real people on the other side. And ultimately, it is about finding someone who falls in love with your writing or, or the book you want to write or, or sees a viable path to market. And that's, that's important. It's not a spaceless sort of industry. I wanted to ask you, though, I mean, you, you acquire a lot of books, but you also edit them yourself, uh, or at least that first substantive or developmental edit. And, and I've found uh, when I was an editor, this is true to varying degrees, but every editor sort of has their own voice in the same way that a writer does. Uh, they focus on particular things or they have, you know, pet peeves or whatever. What is your process like specifically? And what, it, you know, how do you kind of go through that with an author? Because that's also a very vulnerable process, right? Oh, sure. It is so vulnerable. And whether you're a first author, I feel like it's maybe slightly more vulnerable when you're a first author because it's the first time you've done it. There's a lot of unknowns. You're, you're trusting uh, that this relationship that you've built with your editor is, is going to be a safe space for you to work out uh, this book together. Um, but even seasoned authors, it's, it's always, I think, a scary thing to turn in that first draft. Although I'll say that is my maybe one pet peeve. Maybe there's others, but one, one pet peeve that I, that I thought of when you said that is many times authors, and like I said, first-time authors, seasoned authors all have this issue. I've noticed this time and again, they want to get that first draft really perfect, polished, buttoned up before they send it to me. And sometimes it can cause the process to drag on in the timeline because they're just about there. They're 90%, 95% there. And they're reaching out to me and they're saying, I'm almost there, but I just need to, you know, I just need to tighten up some lines or I can tell my prose in this chapter is, is a little awkward. I need to work on it. And I say, please just send it to me because in that first round of edits, we're going to tear it up anyway. Um, usually um, it's going to get ripped apart in the best way possible. Um, and we're going to get in there and really uh, move things around and uh, question, you know, there may be whole sections that get cut. For any given reason. And if you've just spent two weeks perfecting a paragraph that we end up just cutting, that's two weeks of wasted time on your end and then on the, the end of us trying to schedule this book, obviously. So I like to say, hey, this is, this is again, a safe space that, you know, I'm not going to go in there and just tear things out and you're going to wonder, why did I do what I did? We're going to do this in conversation. Uh, we always do everything in track changes. And so if I do something and you don't like it, you can you can stead it. Um, but let's just uh, work on this together. Um, and so I think that's a big way that I like to work with my authors is let's just be in communication. Um, some authors like to send progress chapters as they're working. So they might have a chapter to, especially as they're starting writing, that it helps for us to look at together and make sure that they're writing in the right direction, um, that it's flushing out in the way that we anticipated when we initially talked through the book and the book direction. Many times I'll have an author send me an outline too when they first just start get going because I want to make sure that we're both on the same page about what the book is going to be and where it's going to be going. And this is nonfiction again, so it's different than if you're editing a novel. Um, but for nonfiction, just being on the same page about that direction is really helpful. I'll review progress chapters from time to time and just um, in a very very top level way, say, yes, this looks right. I might get in there and edit just a little bit to say I'd go more in this direction or do this instead. But for the most part, it's just directional. And then they will send in that first draft, hopefully, like I said, not agonizing weeks of making it perfect, but they'll send it in and I will get in there and work through it. And that first round of edits, what I'm looking for is really the structural edit. Do we have all the pieces here that we need to have to make this a complete book? Are they in the right place? 
Um, are we starting in the right place? I find this with memoirs a lot of times that authors will start with, I was born on January 1st and try to give the A, B, C, D all the way until Z, you know, so the point where they are now. And um, so we might need to focus it in. And I've done this with a couple memoirs recently where I've said, you're starting here, but really your story for the purpose of this memoir should start at this place. And so we'll need to talk through, okay, well, if it starts there, then how do we shape it from there? Depending on the book, if it's an argument-driven book, um, do we have your uh, your basically your thesis of the argument stated clearly in an introductory or first chapter, and then how is each chapter unpacking that argument from there? And are you making your point clearly? I feel like saying that over and over to my authors is it clear? Is it clear to the reader? That is my job as an editor to be the reader's advocate, um, and so I'm trying to think through it not as I don't have the depth of experience that the author does. I trust the author to have done the research or to have the lived experience um, to really flesh out the details of the book. But for me, I'm coming at it with fresh eyes saying, does this make sense? Um, is it effective? Is there another example you could be using here? Should you be using more examples? You know, all of those things are in that first edit. And then usually from there, the author and I will talk through it. They'll work through those edits uh, themselves and provide a second draft. And the second draft tends to be a little more granular to the point of going more line by line. And if there's phrases that feel awkward or if it's a memoir, if they don't have the emotional punch at the right point that you're kind of looking for um, or if the, the style feels off. I had one author who one thing we really worked on in the second draft of the edits was she was writing a self-help book, but she also has this uh, great credibility to her. And she was trying to make it both credible, but also very approachable. She wanted it to be in the approachability, wanted it to be fun and modern and kind of cool sounding. But in leaning too much into that cool, we are calling it the girlfriend voice, <laughs> um, we sort of lost some of her credibility as the expert that she is in this category and how she's taken many women that she's coached through this program that she has. So that's very a lot of what we were working on in that second draft is getting that voice right. So that second draft, smoothing out voice, smoothing out phrasing, prose. Uh, and then from there, as you mentioned, Alex, like sometimes there's another draft to kind of clean up some final things. Usually it's uh, editorial wise off my desk and onto the copy editor after that. That's a lot that you're paying attention to and that you're trying to help the author improve throughout the editing process. How did you learn those skills? Was there a process already at Harper or did you kind of come into the job knowing how to do that? I think that there is some instinct that most mm -hmm. editors have as they come into the job, but it's definitely you, you continue to learn as well. One thing that I really like about the editorial field, um, and it might work this way in other departments as well, but I've really seen it firsthand here, is when you start uh, as an editorial assistant, you are assisting usually a couple different editors. And what that looks like, like I said, some of that is administrative, making sure that uh, all the projects get managed in uh, as smooth of a way as possible. But part of that also, I like to say, is an apprenticeship under those editors. So you are, from the acquisition side, you are reading proposals behind them and you are giving feedback on proposals. You are 
sometimes part of author calls when you are the other is trying to determine whether they want to acquire that book. Um, and you're kind of coming behind as, and watching them as they're doing the negotiation side of acquiring a project. On the developmental editing side, you are oftentimes editing alongside your editor. And so they might give you a chapter or a portion of the manuscript to edit and then discussing with you, you know, if they would have done anything differently, if you missed anything, if you should look out for this the next time you do that. And so really you get to, over the course of, you know, two, three years, do a lot of this work in a low pressure situation because the editor obviously is still coming in and doing his or her work as well. Um, but you get to learn how that looks. So I did a lot of that kind of coming up. And then when it came to getting my own projects, I felt like I had a, a groundwork to work from as I then was taking charge of, as you said before, figuring out what my own voice and things that I'm looking for as an editor was. Fantastic. Yeah, it is. I mean, you've had uh, some wonderful acquisitions already um, and, and some really successful ones. I wonder if you could tell us one of those stories about a project that you acquired that you're super proud of or, or reached a lot of people. I know your books with Gary John Bishop in particular has gone pretty far and wide in this environment that we're in right now. Tell us a story about one acquisition and, and how it went and what you're excited about as you see this book go out into the world. Sure. Gary is such a fun story to tell because it's a little bit unique, um, but I'll, I'll share that one. And also I'll say we just learned yesterday that we've hit 1 million copies of the audiobook that have been sold. And so that is just wow. an incredible thing. Wow. Thank you. I mean, yeah. It is a team effort here and a great job on, on Gary's part too, to put a, a really wonderful book out there, but that's uh, yeah. And hang on, hang on one second. Did you say 1 million copies just the of just the audiobook? Yeah. Isn't that crazy? My yeah. Gosh. Yeah, I know. We, <laughs> That's incredible. Uh, he's he's coming in close to two million copies if it's all editions of the book. But the the audio is has mm, been wow. a very successful format. And actually, we're seeing audio in this category, in the self help personal growth category. People are really coming to it in the audio format. And so I don't know if partially, you know, part of that we think is the, with the explosion mm. of of podcasts. And there's a lot in that category that I think work well, and that people are used to listening to that information in an audio format now that the category for audiobooks is just really exploding. Um, for acquiring that book for Gary John Bishop, again, an unusual one where uh, I had actually been in uh, an auction for a completely different book. And as one of the things that we do as we are reviewing proposals is we're looking at, I think I said this earlier, what are the other things that are on the marketplace that are similar to it, that might be competitive books for it. And so as I was doing research for that other project, I stumbled across Gary John Bishop's self-published book, Unfuck Yourself. And I saw the book and I was intrigued by it. And I ordered a copy and read it. And it's short, it's 40,000 words. All of his books are about that 40,000 words. But it was this just really pithy dose of wisdom just kind of shot between the eyes. Um, it's like I, what I like to say for Gary. The amazing thing about it, even though it has this glaring curse word on the front, is it's not super sensational on the inside. He definitely is tough love in your face. He's going to tell it to you straight, but it's not like it's full of cursing throughout the book. It's, so there's a lot of depth to it. Um, and I think that's part of why it has worked as well as it has, is that there's really helpful information that helps people take charge of 
something that maybe they didn't think they could take charge of before and to kind of untangle some of their patterns that they have fallen into. Um, so I read the book. I liked it. Uh, I saw that it was selling pretty well for being only available on Amazon and self-published. You know, he had created somewhat of a following on Facebook, but there wasn't much promotion that he was able to get for the book by himself. And so I reached out to him. And this is where I was saying before, From even though most of our proposals do come from agents, from time to time, we find somebody that we're interested in and reach out to. And so he was one of those cases. And uh, we had a conversation and ended up acquiring the book itself, because we realized that with stronger distribution, meaning distribution to more retailers than just Amazon, even though Amazon is obviously a huge seller of um, all of our books, but getting it into bookstores across the country, um, and then also being able to have it available in an audiobook format for the first time, we thought this book might be successful in audio if we could get it into audio. <laughs> um, so thankfully, we were right there. Uh, and it just, you know, it, it took off from there. And the other actually wonderful thing that I love about this book is Here's a book that, as I mentioned a minute ago, we've now sold a million copies in audio and we're closing in on a couple million in all editions, but it was still a slow growth. It was not a New York Times bestseller out the gate week one. It actually took an entire year for it to hit the New York Times bestseller list. And that was a year of steady growth month after month. We just kept seeing more and more sales that also was getting as, as it sold consistently and consistently stronger each month, we also were able to get better placement for it. So the airports and the merch stores, which would include a Target and a Walmart, the bigger stores like that, they often don't take books right out the gate. They want to see, is it working? Are we going to sell enough volume that if we put it into our stores, which we have much more limited shelf space than a Barnes & Noble um, or obviously Amazon, uh, it's going to sell here. It's going to work. And so once we were able to prove that and get it into even more and more stores, then it obviously ramped up that volume. So it's not a traditional story and it's not the path that that most authors think that is what success looks like. But I often will tell that to authors because it's not a, if your book doesn't work week one or week two out the gate that your book has failed. There are so many different markers of success. Um, and one of those is I'm always looking for long-term success, something that's going to work uh, more than just that, you know, first week of publicity, but really have a long tail and a long life. That is so important today, too, in publishing when when things are so hard. I mean, that's kind of a unicorn in a certain way, too. I mean, it, it speaks of your instincts, first of all, as an editor, well done discovering that. But also, it defies a lot of the trends that we see. As you just said, there's, there's those first couple of months or those first couple of weeks where you see a spike and then sometimes it just tails off and, you know, on into the future. But that that really defies that. And it also speaks to this huge surge in audiobooks, which we've seen uh, recently, which may be part of the podcast trend. I don't know, but congratulations. That's, that's, that's a rare thing to hear about. And it's exciting because uh, we always love it when we're hearing that, that books are working, books are selling, people are reading, right? Speaking to that, it, publishing being a hard business, uh, what are you seeing that's that's been working well for your team? Obviously, we just talked about a few things. Are there any other trends we should keep our eyes on? Uh, and also, on top of that, how do you stay positive when sometimes it doesn't work? Because uh, as we all know, this is tough. In fact, the majority of the time, the books that we put out there don't do perhaps what we want them to do or what we hope. Oh, that is so hard. <laughs> I don't have I don't have an easy answer for you. Um, <laughs> I think that it's a little bit easier when 
when a book goes on sale and uh, maybe it's a slower start than I would want and that the author would want, um, again, it's communicating to the author, like, this isn't the end of the road. There's, you know, there's still other ideas we have in our hat and, and uh, things we're working toward that could see this have a bump. And also, uh, sometimes a book may not work in hardcover, but then it really takes off in paperback, you know, the, the paperback format is a better fit for it. And so you just never know. And I think keeping that in mind, that perspective is important. Or one thing that helps is really believing in each of the books that you publish. I had published a book a number of years ago that did not work to expectations, but it's a book that I'm really, really proud of. And it came up in conversation again yesterday um, with an agent where I pointed to it and said, you know, in this category, um, this is something that I did years ago and I'm so proud of it and I want to find more like it. Um, and I can learn from that experience, like what were reasons that we think that book didn't work as well as we might have wanted it to. And so as I'm looking for similar types of projects, I, I can learn and, and know well, let's make sure that the author is willing to do publicity or, you know, whatever it is uh, on the front end. Um, but having so many books that we're working on at any given time, you kind of don't have time to dwell on. I guess I just don't see it as a failure. It can be disappointing. But the other thing that I always think about, and I think about this for myself as a reader sometimes too, a book that I publish is going to resonate with at least one person out there and probably become a favorite book for at least one person out there. Um, it may not be 1 million you know, people that I'm reaching with every book, and it surely is not. But for some select people out there, this is really going to resonate. And it may actually, I was just, I'll say there was a book that I worked on a couple years ago, and it did not work to expectations. And I just happened to be on Twitter yesterday and saw some people talking about it. And they were tweeting at the author and saying how the book had changed their life, how they had given it to friends and family members that really needed to hear the message that was in its pages and that it was changing conversations that they were having with their friends, their family members, their church community. And I had to pause and say, here's this book that I actually haven't thought about really much because we haven't had much to do on it for probably a year. Um, it just hasn't been a lot of activity and it hasn't necessarily been a lot of sales, but it's actually out there making a difference in the world. And so I think keeping that perspective helps you understand that I don't know that there's any book that fails, even if there may be books that when we look at our <laughs> our financials um, from the black and white numbers, it may look that way, but I learn from those. That's the only way I think I can do it is I learn from the ones that uh, that don't work, learn reasons why, find new projects I'm excited about that I think do solve those issues and move forward to try and um, have those books go out there and make a difference in people's lives. So you really bring a lot of passion. I think a lot of editors are like that. You know, you have to, like you said earlier, choosing the books that you really care about, that you connect with, makes that heartbreak when they don't sell as much as you anticipate a little less devastating. Yeah. I tell friends who are shopping book proposals around, like, find, do find an editor that's passionate about your work that it, that you connect to. I think that's why... Having a meeting, having a phone conversation with them uh, can be so important because one, do you connect? Are you able to, do you think you can work with this person? Because you will be working really closely together for a year, 18 months. And then beyond that, they will, the editor will continue to be your point of contact even beyond publication as well. And so somebody you trust, somebody you feel like the more passion that your editor has for your project, the more they're going to, I mean, no matter what, your editor is going to be your advocate at the publishing house um, for you and for the book. But 
we as editors were having to present this to our sales team and our sales team is hearing hundreds of titles. So how can we set this book apart from the others? Um, it helps if we have skin in the game and that if we really, like I say, for any book that we take on, there's just, there's no way to do it unless you are passionate about it because it's, it's uh, so much work. <laughs> and like you said, it can be devastating when it doesn't work, but it also is so rewarding when it does. And I think that passion is a benefit for both me and my job, but for the authors, hopefully, that I'm working with and for any author-editor relationship. What advice would you have for a first-time writer, um, you know, maybe about manuscript, but also, you know, what, what steps should they take when they're trying to, they really want to publish a book? What, what advice would you have for them? It starts with honing your craft. Just be writing, even if it's just for yourself at first, um, or if you write articles for publications or are writing a blog or are even writing Instagram captions, you know, whatever it is, however you can hone that skill mm -hmm. to develop into a strong writer, I think is step one. Um, and I know, again, a lot of times people think, well, you know, I've got the talents, but now I need a platform. And that is a secondary piece. Um, but I think it starts with the writing and the talent. And then also being aware of what sets you apart. For Gary John Bishop, a lot of what set him apart, especially in the self-help space where there tends to not be a ton of new ideas necessarily, but it's how you are presenting the material. For Gary, he had a unique voice and a unique style um, and that helped set him apart from uh, what everybody else was doing in the marketplace. And so think about your writing in terms of what sets you apart. Is there a certain style that you have? Is there a certain experience that you have that very few people have that you can speak to and lean into that? I'm always looking for that in authors. What makes you stand apart from another proposal that I'm seeing on a similar topic? And then there is that I would say it is important um, for us, for a big publisher, that we have something to work from as we're selling this book. From time to time, yes, if, that we might fall in love with something and we say we think we can overcome there being a smaller platform here, but it makes my job so much easier. And it makes actually our job as a publisher is really to amplify what you've done. And that's why the image of a platform is kind of helpful because we can then stand upon what you have built and shout it so much further using our resources, our expertise um, to get the message out in a way that if we're starting at step zero, it's just going to be more of a, a build to get to that point. Um, so work on figuring out how you, as I said earlier, are connecting with people who need this information, um, whether that's social media, whether that's uh, speaking, if you're a really talented speaker, getting out and um, doing speaking events at various places is really, really good. Uh, it really is just connecting with audiences to share the knowledge and information that you specifically have. Um, and in a style that, that works for you. Uh, one last thing I guess I would say is it, I will tell people they don't always need an agent. I do think it is helpful. Sorry, I'm saying there's two agents, I realize. Um, <laughs> so, That's okay. Sorry. Uh, but I do think in many cases, if not most cases, it is really helpful to eventually get connected with an agent and have them help you shape your material. A lot of what we are doing as publishers, but that I think starts at the proposal process with the agent is just because you have a good idea doesn't mean that it's presented in a way that's effective. Um, and so an agent can help you do that. Um, and then once you're working with a publisher, that's a big part of our job as well as taking your 
talent and your fantastic idea and shaping it, not just in the manuscript, but then also in how we're positioning it with a title and a subtitle and a cover image, and then how we are creating uh, uh, what the book is out outward facing to retailers and to readers. So starting all the way at the very beginning with an agent to help you shape that that message to the publisher is really going to be a more effective way of eventually trying to sell that project to to a publisher. So I do think that there's a lot of services and value that an agent brings, but in that one way, I think that's really useful. It's so helpful. Yeah, it's really good. I keep reflecting back on what you said a moment ago, Katie, you, you talked about you know, if I focus on just the one person, the reader uh, on the other side, who is going to love this book and, and take it and that that will make this book a success. I think that's really good advice. And I and I wonder what was one of those books for you? And we've asked a lot of people on this podcast, you know, what's one book that changed everything in your life, whether that's your career, your your personal life, something, something else. Um, so what was one of those books for you where you sat down and whether it was a big book or a, a book that didn't work, quote unquote, uh, in somebody's eyes at, at a publishing company, what was one that really made an impact on, on your life? Another hard question. No, but <laughs> I will say um, one fun thing about my job is I had read some nonfiction before I got here, but I've always been a lover of fiction. And so I get to do both in terms of working on nonfiction. Obviously, I read nonfiction for fun as well, but then also having a really robust uh, love of fiction and novels. And for me, I always say the book that just that I returned to over and over as a young person um, was Lois Lowry's The Giver, um, which actually has impacted probably a lot of what I do in a lot of ways moving forward, which is funny because you've got this dystopian novel about well, about a utopian society, um, but everything that's missed when we don't know where we came from and we don't understand who we are collectively as a society and we are missing some crucial elements of relationship with others. And so even though we've gained a lack of pain, a lack of hurt and trauma um, in this utopian society, what we're losing out on on the experience of life and love and relationship is massive. And I think that as I've moved forward in, in my reading life, and maybe even some of the books that I that I work on, I guess I'm always looking for what is the lived experience of a person? Um, how do we learn from all the difficult experiences that make up a life, whether it's our own, um, or the pain of others that we are that we are learning from and, and becoming more empathetic and more understanding um, that we are growing spiritually, that we are growing in relationship with others. And so now I feel like I'm making a lot out of a story that I really just fell in love with as, as a kid. And like I said, read over and over, but I think I come back to those themes um, of who we are as humans, how we can be better as humans in not just our own pursuits, but in um, taking care of the people that we are surrounded with in our families and in our communities and how do we continue to grow in those ways. So I'm making way too much out of what is a really great story. And if nobody, if somebody out there hasn't read The Giver, please go read it. You should have by now because it's it's everywhere. But go read it um, or get your kids to read it and have con those conversations with them because it really is lovely. Yeah, that's so good. That's the power of a good book, right? It makes you think of all kinds of other stuff in your life. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good one too. And I think 
I think there was a movie recently as well uh, of The Giver, but the the novel is amazing. Katie, thank you so much for sharing a little bit of your experience, your journey, your story with us this morning. For me, it's always fascinating to hear how someone got to where they are, the different processes that they use to do the great work that they do. And, uh, and I really do appreciate you sharing a little bit of time with us. We'll look forward to talking again soon. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Well, thank you guys. It was so fun to get to talk books. Any excuse to talk books with people, right? That's what that's what people love. So <laughs> <That's right. laughs> thank you for having me on and letting me let me geek out about my job. You are more than welcome. We're we're very appreciative. Thanks for listening to today's episode of On Publishing. If you loved what you heard, don't forget to subscribe and post a review. This episode was edited by Joey Howell and the music was provided by Not The King. And remember, until next time, one book can change everything. Everything.